2: This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So Whit, I know you love Ralph Ellison and that our mutual teacher, Jim McPherson, was a huge influence for you, and that's part of how this show started. And now you write about, among other things, uh, Kansas City and race. So how would your career have been different if you hadn't been reading Black history and Black authors?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I I wouldn't have written any of the books that I think I've written. I mean, that I know I've written. I wasn't really reading Black writers. I wasn't taught Black writers when I was in high school and even that much in college. Um, But the, you know, the entire intellectual history that I learned from James McPherson when I was at Iowa was an incredibly transformational way, taught me to re-see the city that I had myself grown up in and understand things about the city that had been hidden from me. And that that exact understanding became the source material for books like The Huntsman and The King of Kings County, and even the book that I'm working on now. How about yourself?
2: I think I was really, really, really lucky to have had several black writers be my teachers. And that was true in college and in graduate school. Um, I got to work with Jamaica Kincaid, Patricia Powell, ZZ Packer, Jim. Um, And I can't imagine what I would be writing about without having studied with those teachers and without my having read Black and Black American writers who are, I think, you know, kind of my moral and aesthetic North Star.
1: Like Toni Morrison.
2: I mean, I think Toni Morrison is...
1: Who, by the the way, I would have loved to study with. And her class was very highly in demand. I did go to the school where she taught and I couldn't get in. But... (laughs) <laughs> My one school, great regret. The
2: school where she taught. Yeah. The school where she taught. That's how we're now referring to Princeton on this podcast. So anyway, Toni Morrison as I think, always, how could you not start this conversation with her? Um, but I think these days, books about Black history, and I'm including here com- complex fictional depictions of Black life, are among those most likely to face criticism and to be the targets of book bans.
1: Last week, we discussed the implications of banning books with Garth Greenwell, particularly books containing sexually explicit content. Today, we'll be continuing that conversation with Farah Jasmine Griffin, with a focus on the importance of black literature and recent attempts to censor it. Farah is the Chair of African American and African Diaspora Studies, Director of the Institute for Research in African American Studies, um, and the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African American Studies at Columbia University. She has published widely on issues of race and gender, feminism, jazz, and cultural politics, her work has appeared in Essence, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and many other places. Griffin is the author of Who Set You Flowin": The African-American Migration Narrative and Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature, which came out last year. Farah, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. Um, it's great to have you with us. Last November, you wrote an article for The Washington Post, uh, which was called Banning Toni Morrison's Books Doesn't Protect Kids. It Just Sanitizes Racism. And more since the bluest eye was removed from library shelves in a Missouri school just last month. Whitney's in Missouri and I'm in Minneapolis. Um, It wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. (laughs) um, When we think about learning the history of racism in our country, I think parents often assume that this is the role of the textbook. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the particular role of literature here. Because, you know, if language portraying the assault of a young African-American girl is considered too explicit, which is one argument that's offered against the bluest eye. Um, then what does that say about the realities of harm committed against Black Americans, which is ongoing in this country? And, and what effect does that sanitized racism and violence have on our society?
3: Yes, well, um, it's often works of literature, literary works that are become the subject of controversy and um, banned. Sometimes it's textbooks because of what they leave out or the way they portray things, but it really is, you know, it's Huck Finn, right, um, that we come to time and time again. And I think it's because literature makes... Uh, things real they make them they make history come alive they they aren't works of history but they are historical in some senses right and that they are um a way for people to experience something that might be different from themselves so it makes sense that uh literature becomes the topic of controversy and you know i think that in all these discussions about banning Books like *The Bluest Eye*. There's never a real discussion about who we're banning it for. Is 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 there some teacher there teaching *The Bluest Eye* to a third grader? Uh, If that's the case, it's inappropriate and it ought not be taught. But if there's a teacher there teaching it to a twelfth grader in an AP English class, um, I think those students can handle it. And the job of a good teacher and a good school is to offer a critical way of understanding, to provide a context and a safe place. It's why we read Homer. Uh, You'd have to ban Homer (laughs) um, if you were banning The Bluest Eye for the reasons that you say you're banning
1: it. Well, I mean, that's the main problem, right? It's not being banned for the reasons that it's... they're saying it, I think. I mean, your book begins with a discussion of The Bluest Eye. It's obviously an important book to you. I mean, what is it... You know, can we let's talk about what's really being banned here is like a discussion of the difficulty. And you emphasize in your essay, you know, that that Morrison was trying to talk about how difficult this life was. Right. For this young girl. No. and Being honest about that is what people are having a problem with, I think.
3: Right. The honesty of the difficulty that um, not only that her characters are going through, but that many people, including the young people who will be reading this, might go through or might have experienced and that literature is a way of containing and controlling it; those narratives so that we can talk about them, so that we can break them open and discuss them. And The Blue Eye is certainly about a young girl who experiences incest, but it is not only about that. It's about the failure of her community to care for her, uh, which I think is really the lesson that we could learn Um, From that book, and there are examples of how best to care for her, how other children care for her, how other children do her harm, and certainly those are lessons that young people could learn. But really, it's about banning books that tell of the difficulties of a particular group of people, particularly in this instance African American people, um, and not wanting to have have young people confront the truth of that history.
1: Well, we're having you on because we think that it's very important to talk about it. and your your book that, that that we're going to ask you to read from um read until you understand is really about why that history is important to every American and black literature is a great treasure. You know, one of our greatest resources as a as a as a nation. So anyway, I wondered if you could read to us from the introduction to that book. Certainly, happy
3: to Both the autobiographical reflections and my readings of the literature speak to the ideals and failures of the U.S. experiment with democracy. My goal in writing this book is to draw upon a lifetime of reading and almost 30 years of teaching African-American literature to explore how, in addition to addressing concerns about democracy, Perhaps even more than these, the works also speak to ideas and values that have concerned humanity since the beginning of time. Within these pages, I seek to share a series of valuable lessons learned from those who have sought to better a nation that depends upon, and yet too often despises them. In the process, they have changed the world. I am guided by the following questions. What might an engagement with literature written by Black Americans teach us about the United States and its quest for democracy? What might it teach us about the fullest blossoming of our own humanity? What I offer here is a series of meditations on the fundamental questions of humanity, reality, politics, and art. Each chapter addresses a specific body of work and the issues it raises. Although you do not have to have read the books I discuss in order to grasp the lessons I share, I hope my words will entice you to pick up these works and to read them. To do so will only enrich your experience, understanding and life. The voices that denounced chattel slavery, that spoke to the promise of meaningful freedom, that voiced pleas for justice, which made the constitution a living document, the promise of which one day could be made real, have much to teach us. But even more than this, These works speak to us beyond the narrow boundaries of race and nation. They explore timeless values that guide us, reminding us of our responsibility to ourselves and others. All Americans, indeed all freedom-loving people, should have exposure to and an understanding of this body of work. It reminds us of paths taken that should be avoided and paths not taken that may have yielded different futures. It encourages us to learn the bitter truths of our history, as well as the transcendent beauty and humanity of some of our responses to it. This strikes me as especially urgent now more than ever when so many Americans appear ignorant of our history and of the importance of the democracy they claim to revere. In the questions that I raise throughout these pages, I have been deeply influenced by a lifelong intellectual, aesthetic, political, and spiritual engagement with the writings of the late Toni Morrison. Informed by her writing, I ask a series of questions of selected works by Black writers. The authors do not posit or forward a system of ethics, but they do seem to bear witness to one that emerges from the community about whom they write. In the midst of a hostile society, a society that wants our labor or our death, we live in pursuit of justice, in pursuit of freedom, and longing for a bit of grace. How shall we? How shall we live? How shall we treat each other? How shall we treat our compatriots, some of whom are guilty of crimes against us?
2: Thank you so much. I love that introduction and all of the things it invokes. um, And it's a really powerful intervention and argument reiteration of black literature as canon and specifically for people who are, I think, rightfully interested in the intersections between art and citizenry. Um, and Toni Morrison's work has been banned for in various places, in various contexts for a long time, continues to be banned. And yet a hallmark of her work, I think is, you know, her engagement with goodness and morality, which you, you call to. And as you mentioned in the book, Iana Mathis describes Toni Morrison as being both lighthouse and anchor, which I think is such a lovely phrase. I love the idea that someone can be both an anchor that grounds someone in reality and sort of says, you know, this is the plain truth, asking them to look more closely at their surroundings, but simultaneously giving them something to look towards, like a kind of light just beyond the shore. And the argument we often hear as to why novels like The Bluest Eye or many of the others that you mention in your book are removed from classrooms or libraries, or other kinds of spaces is that the content can cause a sort of secondhand trauma for readers. And while there's certainly some truth to this, you also note very carefully Morrison's ethic of care, her writing about black love as resistance and black community as resistance. And you yourself, you know, make very explicit that you are beginning you're ending the book on a note of grace. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the value of discomfort and also the value of care and, and depicting trauma and harm without reenacting it.
3: Well, the best art makes us uncomfortable uh, there there's a There's an unsettling moment we confront something and then the best artists also know how to help us think about resolving this. How might we resolve it? Um, But you have to have the discomfort, right? Even for the for the drama, you have to have the discomfort for the touching of our own humanity. And we're only being asked to read this material. We're not being asked to experience the violence, there are people who actually experienced it. What Morrison asked us to do, and what she says literature can do, and I think many writers, is it is our responsibility to bear witness to suffering. It is our responsibility to bear witness and to bear witness so that we help ensure it does not happen, not on our watch, right? That that's what um, a confrontation with history and literature can bring to us. And so she will give us some characters who are utterly destroyed. And we ask, how can we make sure that not happened? How could that have not happened? That was not inevitable. There were a set of human choices that made that happen. There are other characters who experience trauma, and yet through the care of others and community are able to incorporate that experience of trauma into themselves as they move forward. Um, And one of the examples I always give is in Beloved, um, Setha the runaway slave has been brutally beaten. Um, She encounters a young white woman um, who is uh, also a runaway and an indentured servant who has also been beaten um, and who is prejudiced, who has her own racism, Um, but she's human and she cares for this suffering woman and helps her one, just one leg on her journey. Um, that's also in the literature. And uh, to to make it only about the trauma and the suffering is a very limited reading of a very complicated set of text.
1: I mean, I find, well, I wanna talk, in a minute, I wanna talk about um, what the roots are, I think, of this sort of book banning business. But, you know, for me, Ralph Elson was one of the most inspirational and positive writers. Not that he, you know, diminished, right, the, the difficulties of black American life, but that he awoke me as a white reader and citizen to the greatness, promise of America in a way that I hadn't really thought about. And, and, and I viewed his, I'm thinking of an essay like The Little Man at Chihaw Station, where he's talking about what's great about American art that's not just black art, that's American art. And when I teach that essay to students of any race, I often try to tell them, look, this is a positive way. Not very many people are talking positively about America, but if you want to look at people who want, who believe in writers who have articulated what the promise of America is, black literature is great for that. That, that, is, a, that is a source that is incredibly powerful. And I feel like This is what is missed in this discussion.
3: It's totally missed and it's certainly what um, one of the goals of the book is to say the writers who have reminded us so often (laughs) of the promise because they've had to um, are the writers from this tradition, right, is a reminder that this is what we can be, this is what we are working toward. And Ellison more so than anyone, certainly.
2: And I thought it was so likely, Whitney, that you would bring this up that I put this next to me for <laughs> <laughs> oh. the conversation. Um, <laughs> That's
1: right behind me. It's, it's at <laughs> ease on my nonfiction yeah. shelf here. And
2: <laughs> I was thinking of um, the essay about the novel in American democracy as I was reading your book, um, also. And yeah, I think this is, I mean, such a such a rich example. And and throughout the book, um, throughout your book, there are, you have many specific examples of scenes where. Black community, um, black love, like black care, as you're describing, and care from black communities towards others, as you're describing it in *Beloved*, is um, like a really constant thread throughout throughout the book, which is, I think, something that I really appreciated about it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think of you know we we think of you know we have our we all have our go to writers, of, and uh, Morrison is mine, but so is Baldwin, uh, who never turns away, is you know kind of unflinching and confronting. Uh, what is difficult um, and insists that we do, talk about a writer who bears witness, um, but who also believes in the transformative potential of human interaction and care. Um, In a novel like If Beale Street Could Talk, a poor family, um, wrongly convicted young man, uh, a young woman who's about to have his baby. um, And they are taken care of not only by their families, their nuclear families, But in that novel, there are these ever-widening circles, a Hasidic Jewish landlord who who will rent to them when no one else will, Spanish restaurant workers who will feed them when they don't have any money, an Italian immigrant store owner who testifies against the police officer who brutalizes the young Black man. Um, There are these ever-widening sense of possibility of what we can be as citizens of a multiracial democracy, even, not even as, but while confronting um, the horrible things that people have had to undergo
1: here. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here, and we'll be right back. I want to trace this back a little bit to what I think is really the source of, of the targeting of black literature right now, which, I mean, this has been going on forever in America, so I'm not going to say this is the beginning point. But, but the 1619 Project that Nicole Hannah-Jones did, and... That became, I think, that it seems to me like the right realized, like, if they use the term critical race theory, and we already did an episode on this, um, that that was a a successful, like, political rallying cry to the, you know, racist white base of the conservative party, my my personal simple view, right? And so um, they can't, they recognized, and tell me if you think this is a crazy theory, like, they recognize, I can't just say, like, I don't like Toni Morrison because they're talking about things that... You know, they're talking about uh, oppression that I find uncomfortable. They, they have to say, like, let's talk about the sex part of this instead. It's like a, it's a trick, really. Oh, it's um, a distraction. The, okay. Yeah. Okay.
3: No, you're right. You're right. It's a total distraction. And I think you're, I mean, I think it's the, the power of the 1619 Project. But I tell you what I also think. When I saw all those young people after George Floyd, and not just young people, when I saw all those people hit the street, you know, who basically said, I see with my eyes what this is, and you're not gonna tell me that my eyes aren't seeing what I see. You've done that before, but you're not gonna do that now because I know what this is. I've been taught what it is, right? You've got two generations of young white people who are now grown and have children who have read Morrison, um, who have read Baldwin, who um, have had exposure in their classrooms to the very materials that people want to ban. And what does it do? It makes them stand up and say, no, not on my watch, right? I'm, this is not, I'm not gonna watch this. Um, and I think the power of that is so frightening um, that that is also why you see this move toward, we've got to stop this. We don't want this in our schools. What are you indoctrinating our children with? Um, we don't want them exposed to this traumatic, this stuff that traumatizes them, that makes them feel guilty you
1: know, or that um, makes them realize that all the crap that we're saying is wrong. Is
3: wrong. <laughs> is wrong. And I think
2: one of the one of the other things about this, this is so interesting to think about, is that in your book, one of the most powerful examples of an educator is your father, who pervades you this, this wonderful love of literature, who makes sure that who is not, I think you use the phrase that it's not an uncritical patriotism, but like a really right, this sort of very engaged reading, he introduces you to this great body work. And this is all a kind of education that actually happens outside of school. And I just was thinking about, um, and I found all of this the stuff about your father really moving, and I was thinking about how powerfully education exists outside of school walls in black communities. Because, right, you're talking about the, the young white people who hit the streets, they learned Morrison in school, but they would they have found Morrison outside of school? Would they have, maybe maybe not, right? And so I, I just, it seems to me like communities that... Um, have not been able to trust public institutions to preserve, protect, present their histories are the ones that have these strong independent, like oral intergenerational traditions of radical educational literature, like the notion that like it is your parents' job or your elder's job to sit you down and sort of be like, this is who Angela Davis is. And I wonder like in a world in which we can't maybe, I don't know what's going to happen with book banning. I mean, it seems like there's a certain amount of backlash, of course, towards it. And there's also this kind of, like, short-term memory loss. It's sort of – then it happens again. It's It seems like a, a cycle. And I wonder, like, how we can also learn from that um, non-institutional educational tradition.
3: Well, you know, you hit the nail on the head about why I wrote this book. <laughs> because I was – you know, I wanted to share – the things that I share in my classroom with people who will never be in my classroom, because I didn't come to this material in the classroom. And not only did I not come, I mean, I eventually did, but as a child, I didn't. And not only did I not come to it in the classroom, my parents didn't expect, they didn't, they had no expectation that the school was going to teach me this. (laughs) Um, And in fact, they were, they were countering what they thought I might get in school. You know, they were of a generation that, read racist children's literature, right? So they were countering what I might get in school. This is the truth of our people. And I think this is true for all oppressed people. Like, how do we pass down to our children the truth of who they are and the truth of their history um, to basically build them up against the sort of onslaught that they're going to get? I think also I heard a wonderful idea. Someone said, you know, we can teach, we can take all those banned books <laughs> and actually make a curriculum for outside of school to teach young people, right? And now we have all kinds of ways to do it. Let's read the banned books together. It's a community building effort. It's an intergenerational effort. Um, and it's something that uh, we have a tradition of having done.
1: The other thing about that is that there's a, rec- I think the intensity and the reason that the the, pow- the, the banning books, and the idea of banning books that are viewed as an ideological threat, comes back. It's is a, is a recognition of the asymmetrical power of the writer. Um, that, that, that is one of the, that Toni Morrison is extremely powerful. She doesn't have, she's not a corporation. She doesn't have, you know, like own a bunch of land, but she, she, she has, by her power in her art, created a, a power that is very difficult for her ideological opponents to uh, wrestle with. Um, and that for me is inspirational as a writer, right? It was the thing that taught me reading, uh, black writers who had had that effect and been able to establish a cultural beachhead like that in America is inspirational because it tells you what writing can do.
3: Some of Toni Morrison's best writing about exactly what you're talking about. I mean, they're, are her novels, but then there are also her essays. She was a fierce advocate for writers who were oppressed around the world. Um, And there are essays and articles that she wrote for Pan America. There's a a beautiful one called Peril about why we have to protect writers and that the loss of the writer is not only bad for the writer, it's bad for us. That writers are essential. They're not extra. They're essential to us as human beings and to human society. Um, And she recognized and knew that power and knew the power of language. And she says, she said, even in that essay, she says, oftentimes autocrats are fools. She says, but none is so foolish as to give full unfettered, like, you know, freedom to the writer, because they know the power of the writer, and the power of people who are engaged by what writers have to say.
2: So I'm curious, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I have also just been thinking about the ways that as censorship increases, at least in my own community, um, you know, my family is Tamil in Sri Lankan, and In different Sri Lankan communities around the world, I've sort of seen like the creep of self-censorship in different spaces, sometimes just in conversations that used to be more open. And I wonder what you think of how kind of the increase in even the uptake in conversation about banned books um, affects writers and critics. Like, what does it mean for, I don't know, Whitney, myself, you to be writing in a world where we know that that's a possibility
3: you know, I look throughout history and I think that certainly it will cause some self censoring amongst some writers. You I know, mean, writers are human beings and, and, and we are you know, we have fears and concerns and families and and you know you know, this sense of like writing into the void, no one's gonna hear it. But in every time, in every instance in history, there are writers who keep writing. Even at the risk of their own lives, we have writers you know, we have writers who are not only banned, who are jailed, right? Um, I think that the conviction that some artists have is similar to the conviction that uh, that activists have, you know, who know what awaits them if they, but they still they still do it. Um, and so I don't, I, 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 like Morrison says, like imagine a world without the art, right? Um, I, she's like, I don't want to live in that world. And I think that certainly, you know, there are some who would like us to live in that world. But I think that there will always be the people who are writing in prison. I was reading just recently about someone writing in a concentration camp and how it was snuck, you know, somebody somebody rolled it up and snuck it out, right? That's our history as writers. That's our history too. And so I think the self-censorship is a danger, but I think that artists will produce and writers will continue to write what they understand to be the truth.
1: You know, I mean, I always think about a letter from Birmingham jail, which was also an essay, you know, written by Martin Luther King that was reliant on and, and thought about and was connected to Thoreau, you know. And so there is this inner racial connection in, in among writers and over time. And it's one also something that Ellison emphasized that people borrow from each other and that one of the things that makes our country strong in the arts is the borrowing um and you know uh that that positive aspect again is the thing that's missed by people who are like i don't want to you know that we, that we we quoted a texas state representative uh in the in the prior episode who had a list of 850 books that he uh had given to said to the school board were something that might make people feel uncomfortable maybe we should look at banning these and as you were saying, like you were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, like many of them were just like Black Lives Matter. Anything that mentioned Black Lives Matter, we're going to take that out. And you're saying, and I think you're right, that his concern is that 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 not just that the white Americans who were involved in those protests and saw them and, and began to see, you know, what is really happening here uh, are going to sort of get out from under his thumb is what it feels like to me.
3: I think it's I think I think it's wanting to control everything,
1: right? Yeah. It's
3: wanting to control white people, keep them, you know. And but that's what that's what many people never understand, right? Is that you control? If the impulse is to control a population, the impulse is to control people, right? So you might try to control what access, you know, um, what what people write, what education. Um, What the quality of education that is available to young black children, so they don't even know how to write. And then the quality of education of what's available to white people so that they don't have access to it. You have closed societies like apartheid South Africa. And after the fall of apartheid, you had white people in South Africa realizing there were things that their own government was keeping from them, too. So the impulse to control is the impulse to control the entire society. The violence is felt among certain populations a little more harshly.
1: By the people who are determined right. to be the other, right, yeah.
3: You know, but I think, and what you said about speaking interracially, it's also speaking through time. Like, writers speak through time, right? We, You know, and we read, and writers read people from other continents um, and, and get that sort of nourishment there and see themselves as part of that legacy and tradition.
2: And that was one of the things that I really appreciated about your book, that it wasn't organized by time period, that I think so much of that, um, right, that critical race theory rhetoric is also kind of trying to say the past is the past. And the past is not that far past as we know. But also the way that you organize by theme allows this really interesting conversation across periods of time, which is always going on, but which is, I think, sometimes really hard to kind of because of the ways that English departments, among other things, are organized, you know, peer, I was I just was asking my
1: seventeenth um, century,
2: yeah, literature, <laughs> right. right. I, I was just asking my um, <laughs> older kid when I say the word periodicity to you, what do you think that means? <laughs> and um, right, you know, the ways in which that is kind of limiting. I mean, it's it's. I mean, from one lens, obviously, really valuable, but I think in this in the in the framework that in which you're writing about freedom and. The the, the the conversation across um, generations, I think, is one of the really lovely things in this book. and and also the way that um, the arc of the questions kind of moves and from like um, rage and resistance to to grace to see the the ways that those different themes are brought up by different writers across so much so much time, right? Like there're actually some so, yeah, across so much time.
3: Yeah. And they're reading each other, you know, like the, um, the, the younger writers are reading. I, I try to show how, you know, Barack Obama, who is a writer and an intellectual, as well as a politician, um, I try to show how it's evident that he's read not only the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and he's read Niebuhr, and he's read Baldwin, and he's read Malcolm X, because he is in conversation with him in the book. Um, he's read all of these people, you know, Rawls on justice. I mean, that, that that all of these are informing. They're all part of our toolkit. Right. And there, there are no boundaries, artificial boundaries to what is part of our sort of intellectual and artistic toolkit that we have access to as long as um the banners aren't successful. And I think we have to just make the idea of banning books, books that I don't agree with. You know, I want access to them. I I don't want I don't I, I want to be able to disagree with them. Um I don't want to live in a world where the answer is you ban a book. Like that's not the society that we should be striving for at all.
2: It also seems to me like something that fundamentally weakens I mean it just weakens critical thought and that everyone becomes less capable of interesting and like interesting argument interesting and rigorous argument. I mean, there's a part in your book where you, you're writing about sort of the concept of um the outdoors um and you write about um, you're writing writing about the bluest eye, and it seems to me like banning books is a way of put trying to put something outdoors, whereas mm-hmm. to exclude something to th- you you refer to the the quote unquote the throat out child. Um, yes, and actually that sort of is also yeah it's I mean that's what the book banners are trying to do, and so if if we don't succeed in doing having some sort of more inventive conversation about this. If you end up with this set of, say, white readers who have this lack of knowledge about our own literary history and cultural history and how does our, what does our democracy look like? And we always like to throw these future questions in at the end. What does our democracy look
3: like in 30 years? Well, we don't. you don't have a democracy that bans books. You don't have a democracy that um, that tries to hide, keep its population from having access to information And any group of people that really want to stop critical thinking, because that's what it is. It's not critical race theory, right? That's the boogeyman, because they're not even talking about critical race theory. It's a population that thinks critically. Now, they don't mind if they think conspiratorially, right? And they'll say that to think conspiratorially is to think critically. It's ridiculous. But a population that thinks critically is not a population that can be controlled in that way, Um, And so I think that's what the goal is. The goal is to not have a population that thinks critically, not have a population that can understand dialogue, be in conversation. There is no democracy without that dialogue as citizens. There is no democracy without an informed citizenry. And that's what we, that's what they don't want is an informed, you know, what did... um, you know, uh, the man who was president say, I love the uneducated. Well, it's not just the uneducated, because uneducated people can be also critical thinkers and smart. He's like, I love the people who don't think is what he loves, <laughs> right? The people who don't think.
1: I wanted to, and this is just, and we're about to wrap up here, but okay. I, I wanted to add to, you know, we talked about the sixty nineteen project and maybe that is a source for this new wave of book branding. But I also think that, and I wondered what you thought about this, what it strikes me is that when I was going to high school in 1980s, in essence, the books that are in your book were at my high school banned without being said that they were banned because nobody <laughs> taught black writers right. at my high school, period. Now they do. Now my son goes to the same school. And I think increasingly on the you know high school level, there's been a large push in a consciousness that more diverse books do need to be read. And suddenly, A certain segment of our population is waking up and being like, wait a second, we want to go back to the old ways where these things were shadow banned or sort of just it was understood that they would not be taught. Is that is it possibly that that's part of the deal here?
3: Oh, it's definitely part of the deal. I mean, I didn't grow up reading these books in school either. Right. I was in school in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, I read them on my own. I read them with friends but not in school. And then, as you say, things changed and, and you started reading them. But it's not just, you know, we want to go back. We want to go back to the days when people didn't have the right to vote. <laughs> we want to go back to the days when women didn't have control over their own bodies. Right. That's when um, everything was great again. That's when right? all was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was all great. And we want to go back to it. And it's these darn books where they didn't read books about two mommies. Right. That that's what that's what has changed us for the worse. We want to go back. Um and so it's all. I think it's part and parcel of a far right shift, and public schools and school boards and um, curricula, that has always been. Um, that's always been uh, one of the sites of struggle and contestation. And it's not only black children who suffer; white children suffer too. And you know, I, it, it's these these moves, you know, to stop people from voting. It impacts black voters and brown voters, but it will impact poor white voters, too. Uh, We are the canaries in the coal mine. So I think that's the danger. That's the danger.
2: It's so interesting to hear the two of you talk about this work not being taught at school, because where I went to school, it was taught. And I have these specific memories of reading The Bluest Eye and, um, you know, the autobiography of of Malcolm X. And, um, you know, it was that my brother had been assigned those books. And I went into his room and filched them. And I was definitely, you know, probably too young to be reading them. And also they were just so brilliant. Like there was – I would just sort of wait until everyone left the house and then I would go get them. But then also they were taught in school. And so it's hard for me to even imagine classroom spaces without this work because I guess, you know, I've grown up very privileged with access to them. So it's – it's it's yeah, it's amazing to hear.
3: <laughs> it's a different – I mean, yeah. it's I think in different contexts they've been taught, in different – um in different locations, they've been taught. I think that one of the things that I often think um, is that, you know, in in the United States, one of the um, goals of white supremacy was to 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 call into question the intellectual ability of black people, and so you can't call into question their intellectual ability if you have young people reading these books. I mean, you know, you just, you can't do that. So um, it makes the project of saying that people are, don't have the capacity uh, to think, it makes it a little bit easier to do, <laughs> to tell that lie, if you, if you keep people from reading what they've written.
1: Farah, we want to thank you for joining us. Um, listeners, you can hear more of what Farah Jasmine Griffin says on Twitter, and be sure to grab a copy of Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. This show is produced by Ann Kenigendorf To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. In recent days, we've been waiting on tenor hooks to see if Russian President Putin is going to order an invasion of Ukraine. So I especially want to point listeners back just a few weeks to our Ukraine episode, which featured New York Times Moscow bureau chief Anton Trynovsky and Yale historian Marcy Shore. That was a really informative conversation and has helped me to understand more recent developments. We're watching the news closely, and we know you are too. Until next time, that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub.